It's Easter Sunday, so happy Easter to all of you. It is a great day of celebration for those of us who claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Today is, of course, the day we set aside to celebrate the work of God through the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And we, as Christians, we, we celebrate that every day in some sense, but even our culture sets aside this day to, to focus on and celebrate that one event. And, and, and what, do you, what an event that was. The Bible says that Jesus lived a life that we couldn't live and died a death that we couldn't die. And his death paid the penalty of sin and his resurrection proved it and conquered death. And that's what today is about. It's, it's why we're gathered. So thank you. Thank you for being a part of our service this morning, especially if, if this happens to be the first time you're with us. Craig mentioned that earlier, but I want to thank you also. We're, we're so glad that you're here. Now, whether you live in the area or maybe you're just visiting family or friends, it doesn't matter. Uh, we're so thankful that you chose to worship with us today. If you are new here and you don't know me, my name is Troy Stogsdale. And I have the privilege of being the guy that, that preaches up here most Sundays. And the way we generally approach the preaching ministry of this church is to systematically study the Bible one book at a time. So we pick a book, we go through it verse by verse, giving you some history, what, what that passage is actually teaching, and then how you can apply that to your life even today. And we're currently studying the book of Nehemiah, and that's where we're going to be this morning as we celebrate Easter and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, that's no problem. Everything will be on the screens behind me here. Now, I am aware that an Easter sermon out of the book of Nehemiah isn't exactly typical. Um, not even for us. Typically on a day like today, I'd, I'd, I'd do a sermon that's outside the normal book study that was special to the occasion, like the resurrection. But where we find ourselves in the book of Nehemiah is, is fitting for the day. At least it seems so to me. I guess you can be the judge when I'm done. But I've decided to stick with this passage because there's a beautiful picture in this passage that points directly to Jesus. Now, by, by way of background, Nehemiah is a book of the Old Testament, and it documents part of the nation of Israel's return to Jerusalem to rebuild that city. They had been, capti had been in captivity for many years after being defeated by their enemies, the Babylonians. And some time had passed, and, and pockets of Jews were being allowed to return to, to Jerusalem to rebuild. And Nehemiah was a guy that led one of those rebuilding efforts after that time of captivity. And in spite of some pretty intense opposition, he, he commissioned them to go rebuild the walls and the gates around the city. And they were able to accomplish that in 52 days. It was an amazing, amazing accomplishment and something they couldn't have done if they hadn't been unified together, and if they didn't have the Lord on their side, there was that bit of detail there. But that covers the first six chapters of the book of Nehemiah. And then beginning in chapter 7, the, the focus of the book shifts from the rebuilding of the walls to the rebuilding of the people. Or establishing the people, the community together, and in worship of the Lord. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at those first eight verses of Nehemiah chapter 8 and, and saw how those verses set the foundation 
for establishing the people by placing God's word at the center as the central focus and the guide by which they were going to establish and rebuild their homes and their families and their community. And when we pick the story up in verse 9, there in chapter 8, they had just come off of that time of of the reading of God's word and they were listening to the reading and, and the preaching of God's word. It had been explained to them. But that explanation came with some realizations and realities. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So let's look at it together, see what God will teach us on this Easter Sunday. Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to be studying verses 9 through 12. But just to set a little bit of context, let's pick it up in verse 8. And the Bible says, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God, mourn not nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy unto our Lord, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth, because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. Uh, what a day it is that we celebrate the, one of the greatest days that this earth has ever seen. The day that your son uh, rose from the grave. And, and Lord, we're so thankful for that event. And we'll be talking about that throughout the course of the morning. But, but Lord, we just want you to know how grateful we are. I pray that you be with us today. I pray that your Holy Spirit teaches us exactly what we need. We all come in here at different spots. And, and Lord, we have different needs. And so, Lord, I pray that you meet each and every one of them this morning. I pray that what is said is... True to your word, I pray that it is glorifying to you, Lord. I pray that this entire service, as we worship you today in song and, and in, in, in the listening and hearing of your word, Lord, that, that you're glorified in it. It is a sweet savor to you. We love you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, in some ways, when I, when I read this passage and I, and I first started studying it out, it reminded me of a story in church history that, that many of you might be aware be aware of. It's uh, Jonathan Edwards and his preaching of a sermon titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And Edwards preached that sermon most notably. He preached it a few times, I think, but he preached it most notably on July 8th, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. And that preaching event, that service is widely accepted as the primary catalyst for what is known as the First Great Awakening. And the First Great Awakening was a spiritual revival that swept through the 13 colonies before we were even the United States of America. And I don't know how much revisionist history comes into play with the retelling of Edward's sermon. I'm sure some. But history says that he delivered that sermon in a very monotone style, basically just reading it. And yet it made such an impact that the people were clinging to their pews afraid that they were going to be dragged into hell. And Edward was interrupted multiple times throughout the sermon with people yelling out, what must I do to be saved? And the reason 
was because the Holy Spirit of God, through the Word of God, revealed some stark realizations to the listeners. And they saw their sin in light of God's holiness. And that's what we see happening here at this point in Nehemiah chapter 8. Specifically in verse 9, they read the words of the law. And it caused the people to mourn and weep. And the reason why in our first point of study this morning is that the word of God brings a sentence. The word of God brings a sentence. Look again at verses 8 and 9 and and let's pay attention to the people's reaction and what it was they were reacting to. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, that just means governor. And Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people, all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And this was like the people holding on to their pews listening to Jonathan Edwards preach. The word of God brought mourning and weeping and concern. And here is why. When they heard the word of God being taught, they knew they were guilty. And they knew that just like in our court system, a guilty verdict brings a sentence. And for Israel, they had been experiencing that sentence for many years. All because of their disobedience. You see, God had promised things to the nation of Israel. And he had promised blessings and security, but they had to do things his way. They had to live according to his word. Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 and 2 says, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. And all the specific blessings are laid out over the next 12 verses in Deuteronomy 28. And God promised to provide for them and to take care of them fully and to set them above all the nations. But they chose not to obey. And it didn't line up their life with God's word, and they didn't live by God's commandments. So that brought a sentence. And God warned them about the sentence. Later in Deuteronomy 28, he he tells them in verse 15, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And for the next 53 verses, God lays out the sentence for not following his word. So instead of blessings and security, they received curses and captivity. In verse 25 of Deuteronomy 28, God told him this, The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. I shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and shall be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And that's exactly what happened to them before and after Nehemiah. 
And so when the word of God was being read to them and explained to them, they were coming under the realization that they had messed things up. And it was their fault. And they were guilty. And because of their guilt, they were experiencing a due punishment. And they were feeling the conviction of that sin in their life. And, and, and listen, we are talking about Israel and the punishment for their sin. But the fact is that even today, the same principle still applies in us. There is a picture that you need to see here. And that is even when you and I choose to live in direct opposition to God and direct opposition to God's word, when we choose to sin, there are consequences. And sin must be dealt with. And unfortunately, there is a sentence that comes along with sin. And the Bible says that that sentence is death. And you may think, well, well listen, I, I thought we were supposed to celebrate today. I thought this is, this is Easter Sunday, this is the, the resurrection. Just hang on, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But we have to see this first. And you may be thinking, listen, you're, you're coming in a little hot here. I may, I may not be perfect, but I don't think I deserve that. And I'm not that much of a sinner. Well, let me take a minute and show you what the Bible has to say. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, for all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. And of course, all means all, and that means you, and that means me. No matter how good we think we are. And we find this sentence for our sin problem later in the book of Romans, in the first half of Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And a wage is something that you earn as a result of the work that you do. And our work, our righteousnesses, according to Isaiah 64, 6, do not account for much. That verse says, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. You see, all we earn for our works is death. And that's because of the standard. The standard, according to Romans 3.23, that we read a minute ago, is God's glory. It is perfection. So, unless you never sin, your works aren't good enough. And, and we've already read that we all have sinned. We've all fallen short of that. And, and, and you have to know that, that when we're talking about death from sin, the Bible's not talking about a physical death. The Bible's definition of death is eternal separation from God in a, in a place commonly referred to as hell. 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 8 and 9 says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And in the book of Revelation, God defines it for us even further, and he calls it the second death. It is a spiritual death, and it's a place of burning fire, a lake of fire, and a place of eternal torment. Revelation 20, verses 13 through 15 says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And, and, and I just told you how that's going to work out. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of, of life was cast into the lake of fire. And that is the sentence 
It's not a good one. But what we see with the Jews in Nehemiah chapter 8 and what God is looking for in us is the right response. And their response was to mourn and weep. But, it, but it's not the emotion itself that is important. It's the why. The understanding that they received at the end of verse 8. They understood the weight of their sin. And listen, if you and I ever want a right relationship with God, we too must understand the weight of our sin. And we need to see our sin in light of God's holiness. And that should drive us to conviction in us. And that's what we see with these Jews. And when you see your sin in light of God's holiness, it's perplexing. David said in Psalm 119, verse 136, rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. You see, there's a time and a place to cry out to God. But the reason and the motives matter. So I want to make a distinction for you here that gets to motive. And it gets to where it comes from. Because there is conviction from above versus guilt from within or from our enemy. Because many times when we do something wrong, we feel, we feel guilty. And we feel like a rotten person. Or we feel bad about the consequences and what doing wrong cost us. Or, in a good light, even how we hurt someone else. But, but can I tell you that even that's not the best motive? Because while there may be legitimate reasons for guilt, guilt isn't what pulls you to the Lord. That's conviction from above. And so this is how you need to look at it. Guilt deals with our internal or our horizontal relationship ramifications. But conviction from the Holy Spirit is different. Conviction deals with that vertical relationship ramifications. It's an understanding of how we've offended God. And we see this play out in David's life when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah murdered to cover it up. And yet while his sins certainly involved other people and he certainly did them wrong and I'm sure felt very guilty about it. Look at how David describes his sin in Psalm 51 verse 4. He said against thee, thee only have I sinned. I've done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. He knew that he had offended a holy God. Paul gives us some good clarity regarding this distinction in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And he calls the conviction from above godly sorrow. And he calls the, the, the guilt from, from within and, and from our enemy the sorrow of this world. Look at 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of this world worketh death. And this is important. It's only godly sorrow or conviction from the Holy Spirit that can lead to a real solution for us. Sorrow of the world or guilt just leads us right back to where we start. Death. Separation from God. Maybe it helps fix your horizontal relationships. And that's good. But it can't fix your vertical relationship. And that's the one that matters the most. 
But through godly sorrow, God made a way to avoid the sentence of death. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation because conviction can't be the last stop for God's people. And that brings us to our second point for study. And that is while the word of God brings a sentence, the word of God also brings salvation. God doesn't leave us without hope. That is why Nehemiah, in, in Nehemiah 8-9, Nehemiah and Ezra told the people, hey guys, stop crying. And then look at what he says in verse 10. Then he said unto them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. He said, listen, we got to get up and we got to start working together. We got to start doing some ministry. And he says, for this day is holy unto the Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. They said, you don't have to be sad. You don't have to be sorry. In fact, you can have strength to move forward in the joy of the Lord. And that strength is a strength to last eternity. And I say that because there is salvation tied to that strength. Let me explain that to you. Three times in this short section of Scripture, we see the phrase, this day is holy. Right? You find it in verse 9, 10, and 11. And we talked about this briefly last time, but this chapter begins on the first day of the seventh month. And that was a special or a holy day because it was a feast day. And it was the Feast of Trumpets. And, and the Feast of Trumpets was the first feast of the fall festival season, the fall feast season. And it starts a 10-day period that the Jews call the High Holy Days, ending with the Day of Atonement on the 10th day of that seventh month. And that's exactly where we're at with respect to the timeline of Nehemiah chapter 8. We are in the High Holy Days, looking to that Day of Atonement. And eventually Nehemiah will end with the Feast of Tabernacles beginning on the 15th day of the seventh month. We'll get there next week. But Nehemiah and Ezra were reminding the Jews that they did not have to be sad any longer. That this was a holy day pointing to that day of atonement. And the day of atonement was a day of joy. Because it was a day that the priest went into the most holy place and a sacrifice was made to atone for the sins of the people. And I'm not going to take the time to go into all the details, but the process included a scapegoat that was set free in the wilderness to die. And the priest laid his hands on the head of the scapegoat, symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto that scapegoat. You can see all that in Leviticus chapter 16 if you're interested. This is the most holy day on the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur. And it was a day to look within and certainly feel that conviction. But it was a day also to put that aside and gain strength from the joy of the Lord. We see that in verse 10. And the joy of the Lord is a very interesting phrase. And it's one that is important to understand because, because look, so, so many times with, with God's word, we just read it very quickly and, and read what we want to read. But I want you to notice what this doesn't say. This doesn't say our joy in the Lord is our strength. 
Because this strength has nothing to do with our joy. You see, most of the time we go through life and when we feel strong, when we feel strong to face the battles of this life, it's because of our joy. It's because how we feel about a particular moment or a particular circumstance. That's not what the Bible says here. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So what is the joy of the Lord exactly? Well, you're asking good questions, so I'm, I'm going to try to... I knew you were a smart crowd. I never doubted you for a second. But when you do a study of the joy of the Lord, you, you, find, a, you find a few things. But, but let me boil it down to, to its core. You will find that it is, a tie, it is tied to the atonement and the salvation of his people. Because it brings God joy to save And that was true in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. And that is true today in the day we live in the church age with you and me. Even Jesus, while suffering the wrath of his father, which was real and was painful and was brutal and was sad. I mean, so much so that the night before when he asked if this cup could pass from him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sweating drops of blood. That's the real anguish he was feeling. Even in the midst of that, he counted it all joy. Well, how how crazy is that? And I want to show it to you. It's in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Wherefore, seeing we are also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. How can we do that? We, we, we run with race the patience that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And look, for the, look at this next phrase. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, because it brings God joy to save. Romans 5, verses 10 and 11, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall also be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. That was his joy. And that a joy extends to all of heaven. Luke 15, verse 7 says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. More than over the ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. And then down in verse 10, likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. That is the joy of the Lord. It is salvation and our entrance into eternal life with him. And when we accept his offer of salvation for us, we get strength. What a deal that is. It is a win-win if I have ever seen one. We get eternal life and we get strength to endure this one. Come on, man. Who doesn't want that? And the Jews received their atonement from sin through the sacrifice system set up under the law. But God made it much easier for us. Listen, make no mistake about it. God still requires a sacrifice. But we don't have to bring an animal like they did in the Old Testament. Praise the Lord. 
God provided the animal. God provided a lamb once and for all. And Jesus Christ, the high priest himself, became the lamb. And his priestly work was to lay down his own life for us as the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 says, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in, in once under the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And that sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice, it's sufficient. And this is key. Listen, we know it is. Do you know how we know it is sufficient? We know it's sufficient because of what we celebrate today. Because the sting of death, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. But Jesus didn't sin. So he wasn't stung. That means death couldn't hold him. And he rose again, and that proves, Easter Sunday proves that Jesus' sacrifice for the, 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 the payment for our sins was sufficient. And it was accepted by the Father because the Father raised him from the dead. Hebrews 10, 12 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And he couldn't sit down on the right hand of God if he was still dead, if he was still in the ground. But he is not. He is alive. And because he is alive, we can be too. Romans 5, 8 says, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is a savior. He came. There is a solution to our sin problem. There is a sentence that was, that was laid down, but there was a payment for it. And going back to Romans 6, 23, we read the, the first part of that verse in our last point but let's finish it because the whole verse says for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord that is worth celebrating he came to live that perfect life and then die as a perfect sacrifice for you and for me it's what the Bible calls the gospel you find in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preach unto you, unless ye, be, unless ye have believed in vain. And here it is, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That is really good news. And according to Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, if you place your faith in that perfect sacrifice of Christ, you can be saved. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. But you just have to make it your own. Romans 3.22 says, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Christ, unto all 
and upon all them that believe. You see, his offer of salvation is unto all. It's for everybody. But it's only upon them that believe. So it's available, but it's not automatic. And you don't get it if you don't accept it. It is a gift, according to Romans 6.23. And if I bring you a gift, I can make it available to you. But until you claim it for your own, it's not yours. But when you do claim it for your own, you get saved forever to be with God. Romans 10.13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can plug your name into that whosoever. And that brings the Lord and all of heaven joy. How amazing is that? But you know what? Even though it's not your joy, it's the joy, joy of the Lord, you get joy out of it. And you get more than that. You get peace. You get calm. And that's our third point for study. The word of God brings stillness. Look at verse 11. So all the Levites, so the Levites stilled all the people saying, hold your peace. For the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And look at what all the people did. And all the people went their way, just what, how they had been instructed, to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. They understood that atonement was available. And that stilled them. That calmed the people. And they went their own way to minister to others. They were free. All because they understood the words that were declared unto them. They understood their joy and strength came through atonement. And ours does too. And after you get saved, you can have a peace that the Bible says passeth all understanding. And God's peace can now rule your life. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also ye are called in one body and be ye thankful. And that word rule, it means to govern means to lead and, and, and God's peace can now lead us not based on our circumstances but based on where we are receiving our strength and where we are placing our trust I mean listen if, if, if you're trusting the, the government to save you I don't know how much peace you can have but if you're trusting the Lord you're covered even if everything else is going crazy around you and, and it is. But getting back to our point, you can only live your life in, in true stillness, in true peace, if you have a personal relationship with that source of peace, that source of joy. And you only gain that peace with God when you accept that offer of salvation, that perfect sacrifice. In a prophetic picture of Jesus dying for our sins, the prophet Isaiah said, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. You see, the sin in our life, it does keep us separated from God. So God sent the one who is peace. Ephesians 2.14, for he is our peace. Who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall partition between us. He sent him. To take that sin away. And when we accept that offer, then we are brought into peace with God. Our sins are removed. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. 
and we are reconciled to God. What a beautiful thing. And that is absolutely good news. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore be justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And once you have peace with God, then you can experience that peace of God in your life, that joy of the Lord. And you can have joy. And you can have peace. And you can have calm. So let me ask you, do you have it? Do you know that peace? Or is your life a mess today? There's a verse in the book of Isaiah. And it talks about God giving beauty for ashes. In Isaiah 61.3 it says, To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And this is a prophetic verse. It's actually pointing to the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation period. And, and at that coming, he's absolutely going to do just that. He's going to give beauty for ashes. He's going to give joy for mourning. He's going to give praise for heaviness. But listen, while that verse doctrinally applies to the nation of Israel, at a very specific time in history, I want you to know that he can absolutely do the same thing in your life today. And we sing about it, and it's true. So let me ask you, does your life look like a pile of ashes? Are you all burned out and have nothing left to give? Are you sorrowful because of your guilt? Are you weak and without strength? Are you restless and missing peace? The Word of God and the God of the Word can turn every one of those around for you. If you'll just give Him your life today. He does give beauty for ashes. And, and let me tell you, that's a good trade. He also gives heaven for hell. And that's an even better trade. But he won't force you to come today. But I know this. He wants you to. Will you come to Jesus this morning? Because the truth is, we have all been sentenced. But in him, there is salvation. And there is stillness. But you won't get it if you don't come to him. He loves you enough to let you choose. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And with no one looking around, I, I want to ask you a question. So he hearing what you've heard this morning, do you remember or do you know of a time that you were saved and that you accepted Christ? perfect sacrifice for your sins as your, as your own, for yourself. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt today that you are saved? And if you don't know of a time that you did that, where you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then I want to warn you that you're probably not saved. There has to be a time that you made the choice to accept him as Savior. 
And if you don't know, if you don't know if you're saved, I want to pray for you. So if there's anyone in here this morning who's not sure that you're saved, I'd just like for you to raise your hand. Just slip your hand up right now if you don't know. If you don't know, if you were to die today, where you would spend eternity. Just raise your hand now. I want to pray for you. I see you. Thank you. Anyone else? I just want to pray for you. Thank you. I'm going to pray here in just a second, but I want to be clear. My prayer won't save you. Only your prayer and only placing your faith in Jesus will save you. But you can do that this morning. And after I pray, we're going to sing a couple more songs and we're going to close out our worship service. And during those songs, we're just going to have some of our pastors up here at the front. And they're just going to be waiting at the end of these aisles. And if you raised your hand, or even if you didn't raise your hand, and you want to know how to be saved, would you just excuse yourself and step out and, and walk down the aisle and meet one of our pastors? We would love to meet with you and, and walk you through how to be saved. And I know that that's an awkward thing and it's a weird thing. It can be kind of a scary thing. Everyone will see you. Maybe it's even a little bit embarrassing, but I can promise you, if you do, there will be hundreds of people in this room so excited for you and the decision that you're making. So as soon as I finish praying and we start singing, come on down if you would like to know how to be saved today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you that you provided a, a solution to our problem. And we know we're sinners. There's no question about that. Everybody in here knows that. And Lord, you're holy, you're perfect, and can't be in the presence of sin. And so, Lord, you made a way. And thank you for that atonement. Thank you for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your joy. How, what an amazing thing that is. Lord, I pray for those in here now that are struggling and, and they're, they're just thinking about whether they should come forward or not. Lord, I pray that you just give them strength. You give them the courage to step out and, 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 and know for a certainty. They could leave today knowing for a certainty where there was, there was spend eternity. Lord, we're so grateful that you rose again for us. We're so grateful for all that you do for us, the life that we have in you. It's truly wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.